Good morning. Thank you all for being here this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this YMCA gymnasium. It's good to be able to gather with you guys and to be able to worship King Jesus uh, through song. And it's also an opportunity we have to worship Jesus as we open up his word uh, together this morning as we continue this series called The Way of the King where we're looking at the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. It's the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapter five, six, and seven. So we're exploring this together. This is week seven. We're taking us all the way up to Advent uh, right before or right after Thanksgiving, I should say say. And so this deep dive into what Jesus said for us, what it looks like when the king comes on the scene and reclaims his world and shows for us what it looks like to live under his rule and his reign. And so excited to get into things again this morning. I want to put a question before you as we dive into things uh, this morning and ask you to think about this. All right, we got to go back. For many of you, think like elementary school. All right, so jog your memory. Think back to those, those days. Some of you, maybe you're closer to that age. It might not be quite as difficult. But for some of us, it's like, okay, I think I might remember that. And just think about for a moment, do you remember what was up on the wall oftentimes that the teacher would have had? And it looked like something like this. There was the sticker chart. Do you remember that? All right. And I want to ask you to consider this this morning. All right. Will we ever outgrow this sort of sticker chart mentality? All right. Now, I'm not knocking it. If you got lots of gold stars, way to go. Good for you. All right. Um, and if you're like, I never got a gold star and there's just years of therapy to work through that. I don't, you know, we can help you with, with that. But the reality is there's something and it's not a bad thing, all right, to like have goals and achieve, and I'm not knocking what your, your teachers did back, back in the day. Don't hear that. But I want us to consider this, that there's something about this measurement system that we import into the church, into the Christian life, and it's there. And we can oftentimes walk around wondering not only how are we doing, but then if you remember the sticker chart, right, it wasn't just tracking, am I moving across? Am I getting the star there? But you're also seeing what your buddy is doing and what the pe other people in your class are doing. And if you're not keeping up, you might not have articulated this, but there is a motivation that's present because of shame. There's a motivation that's present because it's just like, I have to somehow keep up. And I wish I could say, well, that, that died, all right, you know, after I moved into like the teen years and got out of elementary school, but it didn't. It's still there, and it's there in ways that we oftentimes, as the church, I don't think want to think about, but I would put before you this sort of gold, you know, star, sticker chart sort of mentality is affecting your life, it's affecting my life, it's affecting our life together as the church and the witness that we're called to bear out into the community. And Jesus has some very profound words to speak to us this morning about what would it look like to be freed from this? What would it look like to mature past this where we're not driven by this constant comparison or measurement of like how we're doing? It might be comparison to other people. It might even be just comparison to like what you have set up as the standard of like, here's what it looks like to be successful in life. What if we were freed from that? What if this morning we laid things before Jesus and we confessed and we said, Lord, I've been living for this thing and it hasn't satisfied and I've been looking for, you know, sort of the gold star that I can put up there so that I might know and have confidence that I am somebody and what if we started to rest in the fact that because of the finished work of Jesus, you have a new name, a new identity, and you can burn the sticker chart, all right? Now, maybe you don't take it to that extreme, but what if that just went away? And so this morning, I wanna invite you to turn to Matthew chapter six. We've been through Matthew chapter five over the past several weeks. We turn the corner into Matthew chapter six this morning. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the first six verses, and then we're gonna drop down to verses 16 to 18. That doesn't mean that we're skipping those other verses. We're coming back to them next week because those verses are what's historically been referred to as the Lord's Prayer, and we wanna dive into that. But I think what you will see here this morning 
is in these first six verses and then 16 to 18, there's a pattern. There are some things that the Lord Jesus speaks in a particular way, some repetition of phrases, of words, and he's trying to get us to see these are all connected. In essence, he's proclaiming one kind of idea and message through these different examples that he gives. And so if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't, there's paperback ones on the back table. And if you are inclined as well, you can get out your phone. You can go to cpwp.life. All right, and if you swipe over, there's a second card that says message notes. There's space there to take notes. Anything that's up on the screen this morning, including the text that will be in, um, is there for you. There will be some quotes, different things that you might be scrambling to try and write down. You don't have to. They're all there. You can email them to yourself afterwards. So I'm going to go ahead and read this. Matthew 6, we'll look at 1 to 6 and then 16 to 18. If you're able, as I read this, would you go ahead and stand as we read God's word? Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse five, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 16, and when you fast, Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is God's word. You may be seated. So what I want to look at this morning, in light of this, Jesus is addressing what we, right out of the gate, what we see here are these practices, all right? And you have to understand, we have to understand that the practices he's talking about, in and of themselves, they are good things. In fact, he's speaking of them, he's speaking of giving to the poor, he's speaking of praying, and he's speaking of fasting with an assumption that as the people of God, as followers of God, that the people would do this that these would be regular rhythms and practices and habits and these would be things. And he's not saying, don't do those things. There's these practices. He's assuming that as people who are followers of God, who believe in God, these would be regular practices. So the question becomes then, all right, why then does he bring up the things that he's bringing up? And it started in verse one. This is the warning that we get that kind of sets the context for everything else that we'll look at. He says, beware. As if Jesus gives this word of warning. He's like, pay attention, beware, don't lose sight of this. Because he's saying there's something happening here that gets a grip on our hearts that we might not be fully aware of. Right? It's like we're breathing in something that would be toxic for us, but it doesn't necessarily look at, like it at first. And all the while, we're becoming more and more unhealthy. He says, so beware of what? Of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so it's this theme that he begins to tease out as he talks about giving, as he talks about praying, as he talks about fasting. And hopefully you even heard in those verses they are being read, like there's a repeated pattern of sort of that, that the Lord Jesus is giving to us. 
And so he says, all right, beware. Don't practice these things before other people. Don't make a show about it. But the interesting thing is, is we've journeyed through chapter five, all right, and if you've been here over these last several weeks, one of the things you might have heard is Matthew chapter five, verse 16 says this. In the same way, Jesus gives this command, let your light shine before others so that they may what? So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so at this point, we should stop and ask Jesus, like, hey, so which is it, right? You're saying, don't do it in front of other people. Don't let it be seen. Do it in secret. Go into your room. Don't let your right hand, you know, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But then in chapter five, he actually says, put these good works on display. So what's the deal? What is he actually driving at? And maybe you're seeing the difference, though, that Jesus is speaking to. He's not saying to do everything in absolute secrecy, all right? You're here this morning not in secret, all right? There's opportunities to pray and to worship, and it's not being done in secret. There's all these things. It's not that Jesus is anti any sort of public thing. Otherwise, what we'd be doing right now would be being disobedient to him. He's asking us to consider the matter of the heart because in Matthew 5, verse 16, it says, yeah, let the world see your good works, things like giving to the poor, things like praying for other people, things like fasting, and pleading with the Lord to give you a hunger for his purposes, his ways, his kingdom, all of these things, wanting to see the kingdom advance. But do you notice what he says? It's not to make a name for yourself, but what? So that more people, it says, would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And this gets us at the heart of the matter. There's these practices that are given, but what Jesus in his love does for you and me here a couple thousand years later, as he did to these original hearers, is he says, I love you too much to allow you to go through the motions of giving and of praying and of fasting and all sorts of other religious things and not address the matter of the heart. Because oftentimes the tendency, and it happens I think the longer we're around church. So maybe this is new to you and you're like, I. I can't relate to this. Some of you, though, have been around it for a while. And one of the things that begins to slip in is we begin to think that there's this sin problem that's out there. And it manifests itself in people that are going about in very blatant ways, breaking lots of commandments. You might think of Luke 15. There's the story Jesus tells of the prodigal son. Right? He's irreligious. He runs off. He squanders the father's wealth. He basically says to his dad, I wish that you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. And then he squanders it in reckless, sort of licentious living and all of the, these things. And we tend to think about sin in those categories. And yet Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not the only category we need to consider. I love the way Kent Hughes in his commentary in the Sermon on the Mount said it. He says, we tend to regard sin as something that affects us when we're far away from God. So sort of think like that younger brother, irreligious, running off. And that is true. But sin is far more subtle and ingrained than that. It intrudes in the very highest and holiest of acts. Jesus is telling us right here, right now in this space, it's possible that you and I are sinning by being here. Now, I'm not anti-gathering as the church, and he's not anti-gathering as the church, but he's asking us to consider, why are we doing what we're doing in the first place? Like, what is actually going on? And Jesus loves us too much to just let us coast into this sort of religious behaviors. That was who he went after. When Jesus gets cranked up and angry and says really difficult things, it's not usually to the people that are irreligious, it's to the religious leaders, the people that are following all the rules, the people that would have been at church every single Sunday, the people that would have been giving and praying and fasting and on and on and on. And so Jesus is exposing for us this problem. And here's how I want us to think about this. The problem 
is in our posture. The problem is in sort of this disposition I think we have to pretend and then to want to sort of perform. All right, we want to have people look and, and think, hey, how am I doing? It's sticker chart stuff all over again, right? We feel this great need within us to pretend, to perform, to showcase for the world. We measure up, give me the gold star. I'm going to be okay. And I don't know if you picked up on this, but in each instance when Jesus talks about giving, when he talks about praying, and when he talks about fasting, he speaks of them being hypocrites. And he's borrowing language there that came from the theater, all right, where people would have worn a particular mask as they would play a part. There's this play acting, there's, there's playing a role. And so what I want us to do is think about this, in what ways are you and I, not just the people back then, because it's super easy, isn't it, to read this and be like, I can't believe those people are doing that, those crazy religious people, and fail to see that I walked in here this morning wearing a particular mask, and you walked in wearing a particular mask, and the reality is like we're constantly tempted to put the mask on. That there's some part of our heart that doesn't want to be fully known. There's some part of our heart that is worried that we're not gonna measure up. We're comparing ourselves to how other people are doing. We wonder like, are we loved? Are we accepted? Can we have any sort of peace? And when we feel that, we begin to act in all kinds of ways. And the insidious thing is this, that the longer, again, we're part of the church, the more we start adopting, quote, good behaviors, sort of religious behaviors, and they end up, rather than leading us to God and to his heart and more people worshiping God, it becomes a mask that we put on and we miss the heart of God. And Jesus, hear me on this, he loves you way too much to let you wear a mask, to let me wear a mask. And so he's calling us, as fearful as it might be, to take that mask off. So I wanna look at these three things that Jesus gives us in giving and praying and fasting for just a moment and ask ourselves to consider in what ways were not only people back then being hypocritical, wearing a mask, pretending, trying to prove something to somebody, but what ways are you doing that? What ways am I doing that? And so let's look at giving. In Matthew 6, verse 2, he says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And so we don't know here enough of the cultural backdrop. I mean, perhaps this is just symbolic, speaking of like making a big noise, all right? I don't know if you ever played the trumpet. I did play one instrument growing up. I wasn't very good at it. I played the trumpet, all right? And it just, because I wasn't good at it, it just made a loud noise, all right? And so he's saying, all right, there's this tendency to sort of alert everybody, look at me, look at me and what I'm doing. It also could be a historical reference that sometimes noises like trumpets, instruments, and stuff were played as a call, a summoning to people, it's time to go and to give. And so people would come up to, whether it be the synagogue or the temple or wherever, and they would come and they would present their offering. But you can sort of imagine then people saying, ooh, there's the noise, let me run out and make sure that I am seen by other people in the good that I'm doing. Now, is it good to give to the poor, to the needy, to the marginalized, those that are under-resourced, that, are, that don't have the privilege and the power that many of us possess here in this room? Absolutely, you can't read the Bible without seeing God's heart for the poor. He's obviously not knocking giving to the poor. But what he's calling us to consider is why are we doing it? Is that these good works that more people might praise God, see the heart of a father who wants to minister to his children, that he cares about everybody from every socioeconomic background? 
Or are we doing it because it's like, ooh, look at me, look what I'm doing. So let's ask ourselves for a moment, like what might be some modern day sort of trumpets, right? My guess is today, if you're, you know, maybe you're planning on giving here at the church, I don't think you brought a trumpet with you and you're gonna announce it in in that way. Or when you go and you're out serving in the community, you're probably not taking a trumpet with you. But let's think about this for a moment. There's some practical ways that I think this plays out. And I don't think all of them are like things that we have to just cut off 100%. I think we long for simplicity sometimes. Just tell me what to do. I'll cut this off. I won't, I'll never do it again. And we fail to ask ourselves the tougher questions. Like what's going on at a heart level? So for one, what if you, what if you make a donation? You give somebody and they want to recognize you, all right? They, they, there's a plaque in your honor, all right? Maybe you're like, dude, I, I, I play at a level like I actually gave this particular amount. Um, they didn't just give me a plaque. Like they named a whole room after me, right? Now, are any of those things in and of themselves bad? No, they're not bad. But what is the driver? What's the motivation? Is it to get your name recognition? All right? Now, some of you are like, okay, that is never going to be my reality, all right? Like, I'm not gonna give anything. Like, you're like, I couldn't even have this cheap folding chair named after me. I don't have enough to give for that, right? Okay, let's talk about the slippery slope that is social media for just a moment. How many of us feel compelled that when we're doing something out, maybe in the community, there's something that's going on, just to snap that, that picture, just to post it to Facebook, to put it on Instagram. You know what, maybe you're like, okay, I don't want the world to see it for forever. I'm going to go Instagram story mode. It'll be gone in 24 hours, but at least some people will see it. If you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, it's, it's okay, all right? Have you asked yourself before posting something, am I trying to glorify myself or am I trying to glorify God? And I wanna confess to you, like this is, an, this is a crazy like slippery slope because there are things even just as church leadership that I am so proud of that I love that our church is doing out in the community and I want more people to know about it. I think there's good and right and true motivations in times that we wanna even use social media to help people, like to bring some awareness to that. People, it's where people are giving attention to and so can we go to where attention is being given so that people might not just have it be about themselves but might actually see, oh my goodness, there's this God and he cares and he's mobilizing his people and yes and amen to all of that. And so we do utilize it in those ways. But I also want us to recognize for a moment that it is this slippery slope because very easily we can fail to ask ourselves, well, what's the motivation here? And begin to be like, pat me on the back, pat you on the back, pat our church on the back, look at us. Modern day trumpets. I think if Jesus was here, he wouldn't be talking about the trumpets. I think he would be talking, at least one aspect of it would be, what are we posting? Is it about you or is it about glorifying God? Now, I think you can use it in ways to glorify God. And I think we're figuring this out together. And I don't think it's a message to go run and get rid of all social media. And the the call to action is cut off all of your accounts and burn your phone. If you're going to burn your phone, give it to me. I'll take it, right? But the, the calling here is to ask the deeper question. What's going on at a heart level? Maybe to help us unpack this, I wanna talk for a moment. I wanna talk about carrots and I wanna talk about horses, all right? And the reason I wanna talk about that is Charles Spurgeon, the late great preacher, great preacher, gave this illustration, gave this particular story, this kind of modern day fable, parable that he told that gets to the heart of the matter, all right? That he begins to tell this story, perhaps you've heard this before, of a man who goes to give a gift to his king. He's so thankful for his king and he just wants to show him honor. So look at this story, all right? 
and let's ask ourselves, hey, what does this have to teach us about our heart and about motivation? He says this, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. And one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot and he took it to his king and he said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. What a great guy, right? The king was touched and discerned, now this is key, and discerned the man's heart. So as he turned to go, the king said, wait, you're clearly a good steward of the earth and I want to give a plot of land to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. And that dude had a good day, right? I mean, at a heart level, he's just, I just wanna honor my king. I wanna just showcase a bit to him, not for reward. He didn't have this in mind. He was just like, I, this is this greatest carrot I've ever grown. Like, let me just give it to you. It's an act of worship. It's an act of adoration. It's what we're called to as the church. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if you're good at what you do and you produce things and whatever it looks like, right? Like, that's awesome. This guy apparently is pretty good at what he is doing. But that's not the end of the story. Spurgeon continues, he says, but there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said, my, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and he said, my Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and my respect for you. Again, the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. And he took the horse and he simply dismissed him. And the nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. What's it speaking to? This tendency again of the human heart to we want to get this particular reward. And Jesus says, okay, you can do it for the applause of man, but at the end of the day, it terminates on itself. That's what you got. You will get the reward from some people. They might applaud, they might like your post, they might even make a comment on it, right? They might even reshare it, whatever it happens to be. But he's like, at the end of the day, that's it, that's the end. There's something more that you've been created for. How is it with your heart? What's driving you? Is it response to the generous, the generosity of who our God is, that he would give everything, including his son, and it leads to more generosity? Or is it, ooh, look at me and what I'm doing, trying to get the gold sticker, trying to get the star, trying to populate this to showcase, ooh, I am doing well in this world. Jesus continues, verse five, talking about praying. Look at the pattern again. When you pray, you must not be like what? The hypocrites, wearing the mask, pretending, play acting, he says. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. He says, okay, they're getting their reward. People are recognizing them. People are seeing them, okay? But he's like, I have something better for you that we'll look at here in just a moment. But the question becomes, okay, what does this look like in your life? Now, maybe in this past week, you didn't go stand on the street corner to be seen by everybody to be praying, all right? You're like, hey, I'm standing at the corner of like 436 and Aloma, and I'm just, I'm just praying, I'm on my knees, just crying out to the Lord of the heavens, like, come, your kingdom come, right? Like, you're, I don't, maybe you did. My guess is that's probably not what your week looked like. You didn't get up in the office in the mid middle of the day, wherever you work, and stand on your desk and just start praying aloud over everybody. So what do we do with this? What is this, how does this translate? Well, D.A. Carson uh, has some really helpful questions. I think he's just sort of diagnostic. He's a theologian, he wrote this work on the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to ask these, consider these things for a moment. He says perhaps a few questions would help us. 
Do I pray frequently or more fervently when I'm alone with God than when I'm in public? Just ask yourself that. Do you pray frequently? Do you pray, pray fervently, kind of equally, like I'm alone, but I'm also in public? Or does it ramp up when there's a public opportunity? Is my public praying an overflow of my private prayer? What do I think of when I'm praying in public? So if you're called on, and by public, that could mean literally in front of one other person. That could be a mid-sized group, a large group, whatever it happens to be, but some context where you're praying. Am I looking for, quote, just the right phrase? Does that run through your mind? Do you ever hear other people pray and think, ooh, I wish I could pray like that? Like, what, what, what is that? Like, what's going on? Why, why is this some sort of competition? They're gonna get a gold sticker and I'm not for praying. Like, what's going on? Am I thinking of the worshipers more than of God? Am I a spectator to my own performance? He says, is it possible that the reason more of my prayers are not answered is because I am more concerned about bringing my prayer to men than to God? So I don't think this past week that I can recall I was on the street corner or doing something in that, that sense of praying and trying to be seen. But this hits home. That at the end of the day, maybe bringing my prayer, like wanting to look impressive, wanting to um, even, you know, am I praying the right amount of time so that God might bless? Like, what, what is it in our heart that, that's, that's going on? And Jesus wants us to consider these things. Like, don't wear the mask. Prayer is a gift that the Lord has given. We're gonna look at this more in depth next week. Where we get to cry out to God, we get to call him Father, we get to be in relationship with him, that he cares deeply for us as his kids, that there's this access that we now have through Jesus. It's amazing. That we can just come to him humbly and we can come as little kids like, hey, I, I want this or this is grieving me or this is troubling me and just to bring all of that. But there's something in this sort of religious, we turn this good thing into kind of this religious behavior. And then Jesus says fasting, Matthew chapter six, but verse 16, if we, as we drop down, he says, when you fast. So again, he's, there's an assumption built in that you are giving and that you, he, that you are a person of prayer and that occasionally as well, like you would, that you would fast, all right? Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. There's that word again. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. He's gonna tell us, like, listen, you should go out of your way to actually make it look like you're not fasting so that people aren't walking around being like, oh, what's going on with you, right? I'm fasting, ooh. Like, because it kind of sets this apart as like, oh, like you're holier than, than somebody else. Can I put before you too, though, I think even just outside of the realm of fasting, that there's something that we do to just sort of draw attention, all right? Meaning, I could be doing perfectly fine, all right? Um, and uh, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm at home with, like, with, with the kids or helping run some errands or something and Heather is out and then if she comes home, right? Like I actually probably could have been in like a relatively good mood, but there's something that I want to be, want her to know, like this has been horrible. This has just been, at, like, there's like this gloominess to my face. I've just like went through war, right? Um, just, just a little bit so that maybe she knows like this, this has been really hard for me. Just, can you just recognize that, right? Um, that there's something I think in all kinds of different situations that we want to look gloomy so somebody might say, hey, what, what's going on with you? Because we want to tell the story to people of like, look what I'm doing for other people or look what I'm doing for God. And it's a wickedness that needs to be repented of. 
We're using this gift, this opportunity to connect with God, and we're making it about ourselves. And so the question becomes this, like, what are you actually trying to, to prove? And so here's what I wanna do for a few moments, all right? Because it's not just limited, because maybe you're here and you're like, okay, I feel like I can kind of take some of this and make sure that in my giving and in my praying and my fasting, like I'm not turning this into some sort of like religious thing or, you know, gold star, all, all of that. Okay. I, I don't think for one, you probably are fully capable of doing that. Neither, neither am I. But I also don't want us to limit it as if these are the only three things. Jesus is asking us these questions. He's calling us out because he knows there's something in the human heart that is always going out looking for validation. Will you validate me? Will you recognize me? Am I enough? Am I enough? Am I enough? And so we look to people. We look to opportunities. We look to some sort of recognition. We look to likes on social media. We look to attaboys from people. We, we look to other people like approval, success, and however you define that. The heart is constantly, it's restless all the time. Just look at me, look at me, look at me. Will you validate me? We're always looking, the way that the Bible talks about it, is we're looking for justification. We want a judge to come along and say, all right, you measure up, you did it, you're in. Like there's something in the human heart that's constantly seeking that. And so one of the things I want us to ask, just consider these things for a moment. I'm gonna read you a few things out of a study called The Gospel-Centered Life, all right? This is not the be-all, end-all list, but let's think about this for a moment of what things are you constantly going after? What are you trying to prove? In what ways are you prone to sort of, like, I'm gonna pretend, I'm gonna look for something for my sense of righteousness. And these are related to prayer and fasting, giving, all that, because it's, it's speaking to the heart. So, Let's just run through this for a moment. It's sort of a diagnostic, all right? Are you looking to your job, your vocation for a sense of righteousness? Meaning, I am right. Meaning, I have worth and value and dignity. And so ask yourself, all right? Are you resting on the fact, I'm a hard worker, I do well, I'm not like those lazy people, I'm not stealing company time. Like, you are a disciplined, hard worker. You're the first one in, last one to leave. You're a great employee, okay? Nothing wrong with that but are you getting the sense of righteousness from that? I'm better than other people because of how hard I work. What about family righteousness? Because I do things right as a parent. I'm more godly than parents. Those parents, they can't control their kids. Did you see them running around Costco? Those kids, like get your kid in the cart and keep them there, right? Like what's going on? Do you have those sort of moments where you're looking out and you're like, ooh, judge, ooh yeah, no, they, they didn't read the right book, right? Their, their kid could be better than this, right? Which leads to maybe there's other things like for some of us, theological righteousness, all right? I have good theology. God prefers me over people who have bad theology, meaning I, I've got a particular theological stream. Now we're not anti-theology, all right? I spent a good bit of time and money getting trained in theology, doing seminary, all that sort of thing. And yet, there can be this tendency to build our righteousness, not on the person work of Jesus, but like in my little stream here, we've got it right. We've got it locked down. We're, we're the true church. Really? Like we've got it all figured out. The infinite God, the one we can't wrap our minds around. Like, oh yeah, we've got, I got a book for you. It'll explain everything, right? Related to this intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. I listen to the right podcast. I do, right? Like what is, there's something in us that's constantly trying to justify. Schedule righteousness. I'm self-disciplined. I'm rigorous in my time management, which obviously makes me more mature than others. How many of you feel this? You're disciplined. You've got it. You've got it. You know what you're doing every minute of every day. Like I could ask you, like, how's your upcoming week going to be? And you could actually tell me. 
And some of you are like, no, no, dude, forget that. Flexibility righteousness, that's where it's at. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible, I'm relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. Now, you might never say that, but you look at the schedule people and you're like, that's freaking ridiculous, man. I can't believe you would do that, right? That there's, you look, you're like, how, how are you all so planned out? There's a flexibility righteousness. Another one I think that we just have in our culture today, all right? I think increasingly, ask somebody how they're doing. Oftentimes the answer is I'm busy. And it's hard to discern, isn't it? Is that grieving that? Or is it a little bit of ego, a little bit of celebrating that? Yeah, I'm busy. I'm somebody important. My schedule is very full. People need me. There's a busyness righteousness that begins to creep in. Rather than being like, man, I'm just desperate for some rest, there's a sense of, ooh, look at me, I'm busy, as if it's this kind of marker of like how amazing you are, how amazing I am. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor, the disadvantaged, the way that everyone else should. Have you not read your Bible, right? Like that can be that sort of tendency. Legalistic righteousness, all right? So you start to make rules like the Pharisees and you're like, oh, maybe you grew up in an environment where I, I don't say certain words, I don't watch certain movies, I, don't, I certainly don't drink that or smoke that or do whatever, right? And you can begin to build these things and find our identity there and look down your nose at somebody else. A financial righteousness. I manage money wisely, I stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. Jesus and Dave Ramsey, they're like almost equal, right? Like, is that how you view it? Not knocking him, we do that class, it's great. But you know what I'm saying? Like there can be this tendency of like looking down our nose because they don't have their stuff together. If you haven't noticed, uh, next year's 2020, uh, we're gonna be in another uh, you know, election cycle and all that. Uh, there might be a little bit of this that'll creep in some political righteousness. Well, if you really love God, if you really believe the Bible, if you're really a Christian, you obviously will vote for my candidate. And you can say who that candidate is, right? Like, that's the tendency, though, on both. And some of you are like, oh no, I'm not a Republican Democrat, I'm, I'm an independent, I'm a third party, you're just self-righteous about that too. Like, it's just, it's just problematic, right? Um, lastly, there's sort of this tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and I'm charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus that way, all right? This sort of mindset that begins to creep in, how is it with you? Now, I put all that before us, not to beat us down, but it does need to connect. Like, we need to land this, we need to feel this on the ground because the reality is, there's something going on, again, and maybe it wasn't one of these, maybe you've got some other list that you could compose, but the heart is seeking justification. It's seeking validation. As Jesus is looking out over this group of people and they're like, you're taking a good thing like prayer and giving and fasting and you're making it about you. And the God of the universe wants to break in, not just to people a couple thousand years ago, but to you and to me right here and say, okay, this list, these things, can it just be blown up? Can we get rid of the chart? Can we get rid of sort of tracking and trying to prove and pretending and wearing the mask? What if there was this power that could obliterate all of that? That's what Jesus is speaking of. So I wanna to go to a couple passages outside of this and then we'll come back, but there's this power that the Lord Jesus offers us where we know that we're justified in a whole new way. It's not about how much you know or how well you're doing in your job or how well you're doing as a parent or if you're a parent or if you're married or if you got into this school or if you have these grades or whatever it happens to be. You got to go on this particular trip, whatever. He's like, there's a whole new way to be justified. And so Paul would speak of this in Romans chapter one, 16 to 17. He says this, right out of the gate, first chapter, book of Romans. He's like, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
For it is the power of God for, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in, the right, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There's this invitation to trust in the finished work of Jesus. A way to summarize it would be religion says, I obey, therefore I'm going to be accepted by God. I'm going to be somebody in this world. But the gospel comes in and says, no, no, no. You're accepted solely through the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus. And when that grips your heart, then you begin to obey. So is it I obey to be accepted or is it I'm accepted and now I get to obey. I get to pray and I get to fast and I get to give and I get to serve and love and care and do all of those things. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm not trying to get this, this, you know, the gold star. I realize I've been given everything. I've been given a righteousness. And when Paul says I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it means this. We will be shamed for our belief in the gospel. Some of you feel that. You got family members, friends that think you're ridiculous for what you believe. You're dreading Thanksgiving because that relative's gonna bring up you as the crazy Christian, right? Some of you are feeling shame for it. You're gonna be, people are gonna try and shame you. What this is speaking of though, that we're not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. When I fail to believe that the gospel is enough, I'm acting as if I'm ashamed of it. When I fail to preach it to myself, first and foremost, when my heart is going out, I believe in that moment the gospel's not enough. That my identity in Christ, yeah, yeah, I get that, but I need something more. I think I, there's an ashamedness that creeps in when we fail to run back to it over and over again. And we're gonna have to do this a lot. It isn't a one-time thing where you're like, I understand that I have an identity in Christ. I've been made new. Okay, now everything else is gonna go well. No, your heart is constantly going out looking for validation and we have to repent of that and then as Luther was talking about, like beat the gospel into our heads because I am like, I've got just this thick skull and it doesn't get through. My guess is it is for you as well. Are you ashamed of it? Meaning like, are you thinking there's something else? Or are you willing to run back to it over and over and over again? That's where the power is at. So why Paul would write to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, you wanna talk about summarizing the gospel and all its beauty? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that's Jesus, sinless life, lives the life you're supposed to live, the life that I'm called to live. His heart was never going out looking for validation, all right, from other, from other sources. He's never wondering like, am I enough? Any of this sort of thing. I do that and you do that and all of those other pursuits put Jesus on the cross. He lives a sinless life and so him, you know, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So all of our sin, wrath of God's poured out on him so that in him, what? We might become the righteousness of God. This exchange that takes place, that righteousness we're after, that word that would declare that you matter, that you're loved, that you belong, you got that because Jesus was forsaken on the cross. Has that gripped your heart? Is that what you're running back to? When you feel insecure, I'm not measuring up in my job. I'm not measuring up in whatever thing it is that you're looking for validation. Do you dwell on that? Do you just kind of go down that, that path over and over and over again? You try and talk your way out of that, reason your way out of that? Or do you go to the Lord and remind your heart, I deserve hell. And the God of the universe stepped in and showcased his love for me, has rescued me, given me his spirit, given me a new heart, as of just a few verses earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, it speaks of. Are you living from that place? And when we do, this is where we begin to experience the promises. We'll look at these as we close. That your father, has said over and over again, will reward you. Not because you're awesome, 
but because you and I, our hearts have been changed by Jesus, by the love of God. And so Matthew 6, three to four, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. That there's this call, you don't have to make a big deal about it. You get to live now in just this joyful response. You've been given everything. There isn't a single thing that you and I could give that compares to what God has given to us. He's given us his son. This perfect spotless lamb that is Jesus was willing to die for you and for me. So no matter what he asks, it's not too much. So we live in this response. Matthew 6, 6, Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Are you looking to be seen by men? Are you looking to be seen by the God of the universe? Like he actually sees you. And there's this really interesting word that commentators have talked about, this tameon, all right? And when it talks about going to your room, it's, it's speaking of, it's using this word, which is oftentimes referred to, or had a connotation of a storehouse for treasure. And so the language isn't just this random, like, you know, this room with like bad fluorescent lighting or something. It's like, you're going into this room, it's speaking of, and it's there that you actually get to experience the treasure again that is the gospel, to be loved by God, to experience the presence of God. This is what the reward is. You and I, guess what we get? We get God. This is no prosperity nonsense, all right? Like, oh, if you do this, you're gonna get treasure and riches and you're gonna get this car or this house or this trip. God's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are you selling people short? We get God. We get to be in a relationship with God. We get to experience the presence of God, not just someday off in the future, but like right here, right now, that the God of the universe, because of Jesus, is rejoicing over you with a loud singing. Let that change your heart and your perspective and your mind when you're having a bad day to be like, oh, I I forgot. The God of the universe is crazy about me, loves me, cares for me, pursues me, even when I'm faithless. Oh, guess what? He's still faithful. Amen. God is amazing. Let's praise him for that. And there's this storehouse of treasure that you're invited into. And so when you fast and anoint your head and wash your face, don't look all gloomy. Why would you look gloomy? This is not to fake it, but what he's saying is like, don't call attention to yourself. Like, go about your normal day, all right? So you probably brushed your teeth and maybe you combed your hair, right? So your fasting may not be seen by others, but your father who is, but, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's close with this. Some of you right now, my guess is you're like, ah, this, this talk of reward though, that seems, I, I don't get that. I don't think that's, but yet you read the Bible and it does come up over and over again. So what does God mean here? C.S. Lewis, I think will help us in this. He says, we must not be troubled by unbelievers or people, I would even say believers, when they say that this promise of rewards makes the Christian's life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with things you do to earn it, and it's quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. You're like, what does that mean? Here, he gives an example. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money, right? You see that, like those things, they don't go together. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he's not a mercenary for desiring it. So there's some that, yeah, it doesn't make sense, we shouldn't be after that type of reward, but there's others that's like, oh, no, these things go together. So Lewis concludes, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. So you pray. And you give and you fast, not to earn it, but there's this, there's this experience that you get of the presence of God. It's why there's a joy that so often accompanies these things. Why? 
because you're experiencing the kingdom. We've looked at this every week, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What you get to experience in that, it's not you earning anything. It's you experiencing what has been earned, what has been freely given for you. And you get to live in just a glad response of that. The kingdom, bit by bit, is breaking in. It's loosening your grip on your things. It's loosening this tendency that we have to think, I'll figure this out on my own, and instead inviting us into prayer. It's creating a hunger and a thirst for, for God and his purposes and his righteousness that he has now given to us, that you have a right standing, all of this. It's the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is about the kingdom breaking in. It's about Jesus reclaiming his world and then showcasing for us what it looks like when the king takes his world back. We get to experience that. We get invited into that. So let me pray for us that we might experience more of that. I want to encourage you to take a moment. Trusting the Spirit would lead in a time of repentance, but also that there would be a rest in the gospel. That you would understand that Jesus took all of your sin and you got all of his righteousness. And then I'm going to call us back in a moment how we're going to rejoice in these realities together. But let me pray and give us a few moments of reflection. Father, thank you for your kindness, your grace your word that you give to us that is living and active, that continues to speak to us a couple thousand years later, reminding us of the propensity of our hearts to constantly be going after other things, thinking they will satisfy. And so Spirit, lead us in confession and repentance. Help us to see the gravity of these other pursuits, that they actually put Jesus on the cross, that we might not be flipping about them, that we might see our desperate need of grace, of salvation, of of the righteousness of the king. But may we rest even now, spirit be applying just a gospel comfort in those places where our hearts feel anxious, where we wonder if we'll measure up, if we're constantly living by this narrative that means we've gotta prove and we've gotta pretend and wow. Help us rest. Jesus, you said it's finished. We get to rest in your grace. So spirit, yeah work right now as we take some time of quiet reflection and God I pray as you hear the prayers of your people that you would get your glory and that we would experience just a great joy in these moments here of connecting with you we thank you for this in Jesus name amen